0: Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. I'm David Calfee, the editor of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, a Journal of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. It's May 2023, and this episode will be the fifth in our series of discussions with authors of the 2022 update of the Shea, IDSA, and APIC Compendium of Strategies to Prevent Healthcare Associated Infections in Acute Care Hospitals. Today, we will hear about the surgical site infection prevention practice recommendations that were published in this month's issue of ITCHY. I'm thrilled to have four of the authors of these updated recommendations here with me today. We have Dr. Michael Calderwood, an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth, and the Chief Quality Officer of Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Dr. Deverick Anderson, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Duke University Medical Center, and the director of the Duke Center for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention in Durham, North Carolina. Dr. Marin Schweizer, a professor in the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health in Madison, Wisconsin. And Dr. Keith Kay, the chief of the Division of Allergy, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Thanks for speaking with us today. We're happy to be here. So while I was preparing for our discussion today, I realized that there is a lot to talk about today with regard to the updated uh, prevention recommendations. But Keith, I wanna start our conversation by talking about surgical site infections more broadly. Things like the frequency and burden of these infections and the impact these infections have on our patients so that we can put the importance and relevance of this document into perspective.
1: Well, thanks again. Thanks for inviting us and thank you for the opportunity to speak about this. I've always, had a you know special place in my heart for surgical site infection, and in many ways, I think of of SSI as sort of the quintessential nosocomial infection. I mean, essentially, you know, you, at a very specific point in time, uh, there's an exposure that a patient has that, that's healthcare associated. Uh, they're at risk and vulnerable during this period, and then the, you know they can sort of have a delayed, often typically a delayed infection, sometimes up to weeks after the. The insult or the exposure, they can develop infection. So it's very, you know, I love SSI because I feel like we can study it. There's very specific known times of exposure. There's a lot of opportunities for, you know, controlling environment and controlling or modifying exposures. But, you know, there's so there's a ton that we can do. But one of the things that I love about SSI, but also can have us wringing our hands is there's always a ton of opportunity for improvement as well. Surgical site infections, I think, are sort of, you know, the riding danger field of the nosocomial infection world. I think people often forget about these. They're incredibly common by some reports of the single most common nosocomial infection out there in the U.S. Uh, Certainly, whether you can argue about definitions and reports, whether it's first, second, or third, it's darn common. Typically, somewhere around 1% to 3% of patients who are undergoing uh, procedures this can lead to you know, more than 20,000 or so SSIs that have been reported to the CDC. Probably the number is much more than that, but for even for a surveillance number, that that's quite high. One of the big opportunities is that modeling combined with other types of studies have estimated that more than half of surgical site infections are potentially preventable using evidence-based guidelines. So these are not only you know, infections that are common, but, you know, we actually can prevent a bunch of these. So, you know, again, there's a big opportunity with a known exposure time where we can really make a difference. You know, surgical site infections, unfortunately, are hugely impactful on patients in in bad ways. You know, the more superficial infections can be more of a nuisance, uh, can, you know, certainly impact quality of life and delay returns to work. But you know what we often focus on in surveillance and hospital-based and ambulatory surgical based um, surveillance are the deep and organ space infections which, which tend to have devastating effects. You know these prolong hospitalization, are often independently are associated with increased risk for mortality and also, you know are incredibly costly to hospitals and to sort of society in general. So, uh, you know, again, these are common. In some cases, these are deadly infections, and we have wonderful, huge opportunities to prevent these types of infections. So if I sound a little bit enthusiastic about SSI, that's because I really get geeked up when I talk about them. So that's sort of, I'll stop there because I know uh, we have a lot to cover in this podcast.
0: Well, thanks, Keith. I appreciate your enthusiasm. And clearly, SSI prevention remains a very important and very relevant topic. Uh, So I'm glad you all are um, doing this work and here to talk to us about it today. So with that in mind, let's shift our focus now to the updated SSI prevention recommendations. In previous episodes of the podcast where we've talked about some of the other compendium documents, we've heard a little bit about the general methods used to update the recommendations. But I think it'd be interesting to hear from you about the team you worked with and if there were any specific approaches or considerations that you used in these updated SSI recommendations.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I want to give major kudos to all the co-authors who worked on this and particularly to my better thirds, if you will, with Michael and Dev, who are really honored and happy to be working with on, on this podcast. You know, we split into three groups that tackle different components of this guideline. As you pointed out, there's been a lot of movement in the SSI space in the past sort of nine years since we last published an, an update. So we had you know, three subgroups and we, I think one of the big things, which is sort of a, a lesson I think for SSI prevention is we weren't just preaching to the choir. We weren't a bunch of ID guys who, who wanna make a difference, adult ID guys. We involved surgeons in this. We involved a uh, nursing preventionists, We had uh, our epidemiologist and Maren carried the torch and I'm thrilled to have her on this podcast as well as she's brought real epidemiologic expertise. We've had implementation experts. We've had a whole range of diverse healthcare and epidemiologic professionals. You know, and I think we weren't just, you know, ivory tower, you know, working with our research databases. We were, many of us are frontline providers who help Im- implement from an infection control perspective these types of preventive uh, methods, and also a lot of the a lot of us are clinicians and, and care for patients who, who experience these devastating surgical complications. So, you know, essentially, even since in the past eight or nine years, there are several thousand new articles that we had to review. We very much stayed focused on clinical trials as much as possible, but if not clinical trials, we really tried to focus on cohorts or if there were case control studies that were important, we made sure they were sort of adequately powered with, with good numbers and, and large sample sizes. So we were pretty selective. We, we tried to stay U.S. focused, but we certainly did a worldwide search and did incorporate what we thought were relevant publications from outside the U.S. I think the big key here is multidisciplinary work, where everyone uh, carried their weight working on different areas, and then we all synergized together, sort of double and triple checked each other's work. And I think there was a very sort of safe space for open communication and input among all authors.
2: Well, it certainly seemed to work. This is a great document. One thing there, but I think that, you know, talking about the multidisciplinary approach we also had the benefit of a number of different experts coming in and reviewing from the implementation side and thinking about how we can turn these from what's on the paper into a reality in the hospital setting. So we had eyes on this from the Centers for Disease Control Prevention, from the Joint Commission, from the American Hospital Association, from many other organizations to really think through what is the evidence and then how do we apply it to make sure that we are delivering optimal care to the patients who are. So as in
0: the other compendium papers we've talked about before, you identified essential practices, those that should be adopted by all acute care hospitals and additional approaches, which can be considered for use when SSIs are not controlled after implementation of the essential practices. And you also described several practices that should not be considered routine strategies for prevention. And you also highlighted a number of unresolved issues related to SSI prevention. We'll get to those in a few minutes. But in reading the paper, I noticed that quite a few changes have been made to the recommendations that, as you mentioned, Keith, were last published in 2014. And these changes include movement of some of the recommendations from one category to another, as well as the introduction of some new strategies um, that had not been included in 2014. And so I suspect that many of our listeners are familiar with the recommendations provided in the 2014 version of the compendium and are really interested in hearing about the changes that they'll find in this new update. So, Michael, maybe I can ask you to get us started on our discussion about some of the new or modified essential practices that we should all be using. And I think a few of these relate to the use of antibiotic prophylaxis.
2: Right. So I'll run through and we will have time uh, to really delve into some of these in more detail as we go through the podcast. As you mentioned, there are things that moved around in terms of their level of evidence. We've uh, had the opportunity to look at the thousands of publications that have come out since the 2014 compendium and some things changed. And they actually, we changed because we're looking at the latest evidence and uh, how that can be applied uh, in specific settings. I will start with the antibiotics and we looked really at how we are delivering antibiotics for prophylaxis, meaning prevention, and these are antibiotics that are infused prior to the time of surgical incision and at times through an operative procedure, but really are anchored now in the evidence that there is not benefit of continuing these antibiotics after the patient's incision is closed. And that includes in cases where a drain is left in place. And so we are really focused now on stopping the antibiotics at the time of skin closure, both because there's not that benefit, but we have increasing evidence of risk. It's been linked to antibiotic-associated diarrhea, such as C. difficile infection, and to increased antimicrobial resistance. The second, when we look at antibiotics is an actual understanding that we're not always using the best antibiotics to prevent infections in our patients. And so about 10% of the U.S. population has a listed penicillin allergy in their history, but we have data from the CDC that less than 1% of the U.S. population is truly allergic. And so you really wanna be taking an accurate allergy history to understand what happened in the past, what specific antibiotic caused that, and does that really mean that you can't use our first-line antibiotics like IV cefazolin in preventing some of these infections? This is gonna be really important because we know that many of these patients now are getting less effective therapy because of that listed allergy. We also focused on antibiotics for specific procedures, and so looking at patients undergoing elective procedures on their their colon, a true emphasis on the need for oral antibiotics in addition to mechanical bowel prep and that mechanical bowel prep alone without those oral antibiotics uh, can actually cause harm and we need to make sure we're doing that pairing. Uh, We also looked at the use of antiseptic solution in vaginal preparation for cesarean delivery and hysterectomy and added that as an essential practice. Now moving into other areas, we moved the use of intraoperative antiseptic wound lavage from an additional approach to an essential practice. However, we did have a a conversation and included it in the discussion that you need to ensure the sterility of the antiseptic that is being used. And so you can read the guideline to understand more about that. You'll also hear today about the work that went into our focus on decolonizing patients with an anti-staphylococcal agent in the preoperative setting. And we'll spend a bit of time today talking about that, because I know there's a lot of discussion about should we do screen and treat? Should we do this as universal? And I want to make sure we have time to come back to that. One that we think probably will be uh, controversial, but the evidence really is quite strong, is the focus on post-operative management of blood glucose levels in patients who are hyperglycemic regardless of whether they have an underlying diagnosis or a known diagnosis of diabetes, that we really want to be controlling that postoperative blood glucose in a range of 110 to 150 milligrams per deciliter. And so that's lower than the old guideline of less than 180. We'll talk about that. We also move some things that used to be essential to unresolved. And we now have a larger meta-analysis in the 2014 guideline We were looking at evidence for supplemental oxygen for patients requiring mechanical ventilation. There were five studies. There are now 15 included in a meta-analysis that really show that that probably is not as helpful as we once thought it was, that there are other ways to optimize uh, tissue oxygenation. And so we moved that from an area that was an essential practice to an area that is now unresolved. A couple other ones just to highlight We now have better evidence on the use of uh, negative pressure dressings, specifically for abdominal procedures and individuals with increased body mass index. So we had a larger discussion on that in the compendium document. And we also reclassified the use of antiseptic impregnated sutures from what was previously not recommended to now an additional approach, and I'm happy to talk about that later. There are mixed data probably not causing harm, but the actual benefit debated a bit. So an additional approach that people can use. And finally, we did have a discussion on antimicrobial powder and surgical attire because we know that these are areas that are often discussed in healthcare settings.
0: Great. Thanks for that overview. And maybe it's a good time to go back and talk about some of those new or revised essential practices. And I think, Marin, maybe you might be best prepared or able to talk to us about the recommendations related to decolonization with an anti-staphylococcal agent.
3: Yes, thank you. So we did move this to an essential practice, especially for cardiothoracic surgery and orthopedic surgery. There's high quality evidence now supporting screening for both methicillin-resistant Staph aureus and methicillin susceptible Staph aureus, and then treating people who carry Staph aureus in their noses with mupiracin twice a day for the five days prior to surgery. What there's still less evidence for is universal decolonization using intranasal povidone iodine immediately prior to surgery. I think the studies that have been done look promising, uh, but more research needs to be done because this could give some practical advantages. Rather than five days of mupiracin, it would be one day of another agent. We've also thought a lot about universal use rather than screening and decolonizing. But universal use of mupiracin is still concerning because there's that concern over the development of mupiracin resistance. I called out cardiothoracic and orthopedic surgery specifically because that's where the majority of evidence lies. And when you look at some of the larger randomized control trials that did not see a benefit of decolonization, It was actually the studies that included multiple surgical procedures, including GI surgery and general surgery. And so you really need to think about where the bacteria is coming from that's causing those surgical site infections. So if it's coming from the skin or the nose, think about uh, CHG bathing and nasal decolonization. Uh, But if the bacteria is actually coming from the GI tract, then nasal decolonization does not work as well. And so, we're really thinking about the specific areas in which there's evidence and then hoping that more evidence comes out for these other surgery types and other decolonizing
0: agents. Thanks. And so, perhaps not exactly related to that, but in the idea of uh, topical agents prior to surgery, Michael had mentioned use of a vaginal preparation with an antiseptic solution prior to hysterectomies and C-sections. Keith, I think maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that recommendation and perhaps the approaches people should be thinking about with regard to that.
1: Yeah, this was another change uh, that uh, Michael uh, highlighted. This is another change with the current compendium. And, you know, this is uh, it was a nice uh, Cochrane review that basically looked at the impact of vaginal preparation with an antiseptic solution, typically povidone iodine, but also chlorhexidine-based antiseptic solutions. And using this vaginal prep prior to C-section, and there's also data as well in our RCT data for elective hy- hysterectomy. And essentially, uh, both of these studies showed that there was a protective effect with regards to surgical site infection for both C-section as well as abdominal hysterectomy. And again, it's interesting that Marin sort of pointed out, you know, where are these organisms coming from with this type of infection, you know, when we think about what we're prepping. And I think we've always been very sort of skin focused with with SSI as we know that, you know, patients in the perioperative period really get contaminated with their own flora and it often comes from the skin. In this case, I think the fact that there's, you know, certainly microbiome type changes, in the vagina, there there's often bleeding and, and passing of, of di- different products in the vagina, even when there, you know, is a cesarean or abdominal, a cesarean delivery, or in terms of an abdominal hysterectomy. And, you know, obviously there can be sort of, you know, ascending pathogens that can cause infections. So uh, this is, you know, I think a newly accepted and I think more widely, a more widely being implemented approach to SSI prevention following a C-section as well as abdominal hysterectomy. So you know I think that this is exciting and this is something that I think listeners uh, can bring, make sure that their OBGYN folks are aware of and and practicing because I think that it can make a big difference.
0: And I think historically there had been some concern about using chlorhexine on mucosal surfaces, but I think there's now some data suggesting that this is a safe practice in these particular types of procedures.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good point, David. Thank you for bringing that up. I think in the past, there's been a lot, almost sort of urban legends and and huge concerns of case reports or incidences of of hypersensitivity reactions, uh, severe adverse reactions when mucosal membranes have been exposed to chlorhexidine. And I think now there's a plethora of data that certainly for, you know, SSI prevention, There's a very low risk of severe adverse effects, and certainly the protective effects, disinfectants, can certainly outweigh any small sort of risk of of a side effect. So, yeah, you're right. That's been another sort of movement here is the increased sort of safety profile, if you will, of chlorhexidine and mucous membranes. And I'm just going to jump in since we're talking about chlorhexidine. I am just going to mention that while, you know, alcohol-based preps for the skin. Are the way to go. Clearly, we know that compared to non alcohol containing. Now, I think there's more evidence that chlorhexidine combined with alcohol likely has some benefit compared to povidone iodine uh, combined with alcohol. Either is acceptable and either can be considered standard of care. But I think, particularly in the C section population, uh, there was a randomized controlled trial that showed, showed significant reduction in surgical site infection following C section with chlorhexidine alcohol solutions as compared to povidone-alcohol-based solutions. So um, that sort of is another shift. I don't think, we're, we're not ready to throw povidone-iodine-alcohol combinations away for, for SSI uh, prevention. But I think uh, there's certainly, I think the scales are tipping more in favor of chlorhexidine, not only from a safety profile, but also from potentially our infection prevention uh, profile as well.
2: And we do have a discussion on that uh, within the compendium. One of the other new essential practices
0: that Michael mentioned that had previously been an additional practice is the use of intraoperative antiseptic wound lavage. Uh, Dev, can you talk to us a little bit about the, that change in recommendation and, and what we should be thinking about with regard to wound lavage? Sure. Happy to. And again as a, a
4: quick note you know definitely want the readers to to look at table one in particular it has a really nice rundown and what you'll see there is 19 now essential practices so definitely an expansion obviously i think we're trying to highlight the some of the the changes and, and new things but you'll see some you know oldies but goodies there as well about antibiotic choice and timing and hypothermia avoiding hypothermia and so forth Now, one of the ones we elevated, as you mentioned, was antiseptic wound lavage. And one of the main reasons is is following the evidence. And to quickly think through that process, you can use saline, you can use an antiseptic solution or you can use antibiotic solution to perform a wound lavage. That's something that's typically done right before closure for most of our deeper surgical procedures. And I think it's fair to say that saline wound lavage does not impact the risk of surgical site infection. What we were able to then uncover is related to how well antiseptic solutions and antibiotic solutions really decrease risks. And on both counts, frankly, there were some pretty compelling data that there could be value of both of those approaches, various meta-analyses that again, as recently as a year or two ago, had numerous randomized controlled trials. And frankly, again, both seem to have some amount of evidence to support their use. When you look at them in some form of a head-to-head fashion, you see that across the board, we're talking about clean, clean, contaminated, and dirty procedures. There seems to be a better signal related to the use of antiseptic solutions for lavage. We don't seem to get as much benefit out of antibiotic solutions, especially if it's a clean procedure, clean contaminated. So head to head, there seems to be a better profile for antiseptic. Not to mention, we really like the idea of avoiding antibiotic exposures if there is an alternative and, and again, potentially better solution for us to use. So when you put all that together, again, with a good strength of evidence related to those meta-analyses and systematic reviews in particular, uh, we thought it was reasonable to elevate the use of wound lavage, in particular using antiseptic solutions, to now an essential practice.
0: Great. And one of the challenges for implementation that you highlight in the document is there is a lack of post iodine solutions that are formally labeled as sterile. So how should we be thinking about that if we're trying to implement this recommendation?
4: Really important note. And as you say, there are specific comments related to what type of antiseptic solution we're talking about. You know, for example, you see one thing related to bacitracin is now counter, is now not recommended, is, is, being asked by the FDA to be withdrawn from the market, you then do need to look at the details when it comes to the use of something like povidone iodine and not assume that just because you're dealing with an antiseptic, that it is a sterile uh, solution. And of course, anything we use inside the operating room, especially if we're putting it inside the wound itself, really needs to be labeled as, as sterile. And so, again, if you can find that, it is useful, but we want to make sure that we call out that you cannot assume that bottles of antiseptic solutions would be considered sterile. So, what we recommend in the document is to review this process with the pharmacist, the OR pharmacist in particular, and determine if what solutions are available in your local setting would meet those criteria and be technically labeled as sterile.
0: One of the other things that's a new essential practice that had previously been considered an unresolved issue is the use of a checklist or bundle to ensure compliance with best practices. Keith, can you talk to us about what went into that updated recommendation?
1: Yeah, you know, I think where we landed after sort of thorough review, uh, as you know, uh, the past 10 years, there's been sort of a bundle mania, if you will, in the quality improvement world, and you know, infection prevention is is no different. I think what the important component here is, you know, bundles work if you have the right components in them, and if all components of those bundles are practiced. So, you know, there has to be a not only an evidence based approach, but also a practical approach that, on a consistent basis, you know, you don't have a zillion components that are complicated and difficult to remember you sort of have a a concise evidence-based checklist. We felt that bundles might vary a bit based on local problems, local epidemiology, things like MRSA prevalence if you will, what types of surgeries uh, you're you're performing, uh, whether you're having, you know, a plethora uh, if you're primarily a colon a colectomy, uh, GI surgery place as opposed to uh, orthopedics heavy. And we felt that, you know, the important thing was that there's a thought that goes into development of the bundles. There's multidisciplinary input into developing these, not only from infection control and ID, but also from preventionists, from surgeons, anesthesiologists, endocrinologists when necessary around glucose control. And we felt that the concept of the bundle was uh, important and the components you know, there's some great ones out there like glucose control, things like wound lavage, things that we're talking about uh, t- today. But we felt that uh, rather than call out one specific type of bundle, it was more important that you get the right team together and that you look at your own data and that you have, you know, reliable surveillance and that you, you know, have input from your front lines to develop what what are the best components and what what you can be most compliant with. So, I hope that that wasn't too obtuse, but uh, we spent a lot of time talking about how to handle bundles.
2: And the important point I would add to that is that bundles evolve. You know, We have historical data showing that the use of one bundle has been associated with reduction in surgical site infections. But over time, what we know is that the use of bundles can reduce infection, but the exact elements needed in the bundle are unknown what you can do is use this compendium document to look at essential elements that should be incorporated into a bundle. Some of those are going to be procedure specific. Some of them are gonna be targeted at certain patient populations based on risk factors. Some of them at your hospital, you may choose to add some of the additional interventions that we talk about in the compendium. So you wanna get these groups together and think about what it is that you're going to include. But at the same time, You know, each additional thing has cost and logistical implications. And so you want to make sure that it is not so complex that it's not actually going to be followed. And that's why it's important to engage and involve the frontline as you develop these. Thanks. Well, I think
0: it's been really interesting and helpful to hear about the data that went into these updated essential practices. And I think we should note, though, that in addition to these exciting new additions and changes, there are many prevention recommendations that are enduring and that have appeared in prior versions of the compendium as well as the current version. And these continue to be important parts of our SSI prevention efforts, and so we shouldn't forget about those just because they aren't new and exciting, perhaps. So uh, can one of you run us through just maybe a summary of what some of these enduring essential practices that we should all be consistently using are?
2: I'm going to turn to Dev.
0: Yeah. I'll be happy to jump in here. Again, if you go through the 19,
4: you'll certainly see some of those that have been there since the original documents. you know, the very first iteration in 08, and that would include that we do surveillance, that we provide feedback to key um, stakeholders like our surgeons and our OR personnel. Probably the biggest push we've had since we began this process was really focusing on the use of our antimicrobial prophylaxis, and of course Michael has talked about a few add-ons to the recommendations we make, but the same three of timing, when do we give it, which agent do we use? and do we do things like you know redosing? Do we do weight-based adjustment are or, or continue to be important parts of our prevention strategy? We continue to recommend that we do not remove hair if, if unless absolutely needed. And if so, uh, then we do not use razors uh, to remove hair, you know, barring extenuating circumstances. And then the other one you will frequently hear about, again, it's been there since the beginning was trying to maintain normal thermia during the perioperative period as a way to, again, uh, with reasonable data to decrease risks of surgical site infection. There I think as I look through the list, the most have kind of come and maybe been expanded upon since we have otherwise started the process back in 2005, but I would consider those to be our our most enduring recommendations at this point.
1: i I'll just jump in and add, um, Dev hit the big ones the other one that's, you know, is often challenging and a mess and sometimes disconcerting is sterilization and disinfection. Is that, uh, you know, often headaches, it's, uh, you know, you deal with flash sterilization, you deal with construction, you deal with volume and separation from clean and dirty. And it's, I think it's important that uh, people don't forget about that. It's out of the realm of the patient or the OR environment is very much sort of, it sits in its own world and it's easy to forget about except when there's a big problem. So, um, you know, I would just say that that remains in there and is a big one. But, you know, I agree with everything that, that dev, dev hit the oldies but goodies.
0: And of course, if we continue to have issues with our SSIs using all of those essential practices, you provide some additional approaches that we should consider. And I know there are a few new additional approaches uh, in this version of the compendium document. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about some of those. I think they were alluded to earlier, Michael, but uh, things like negative pressure dressings and uh, antiseptic impregnated
2: sutures. Can you tell us a little bit more about those uh, potential strategies? Sure, I'd love to, to chat about those. I was actually just thinking a little bit about the, the last question. And you know, we have one of the essential practices really being about implementing policies and practices that are kind of known to reduce SSI. And there are things that we have a lot of references for that I would have people go to the document, read. And so we get questions a lot about unnecessary traffic in operating rooms, adherence to hand hygiene. Those are air handling, things like that. You will see references in the document if you are asked to weigh in on those policies and procedures. So I do want to call that out. In terms of you've implemented all the essential practices, you continue to see an increased rate of surgical site infections. We then go through some additional practices, things that may be appropriate in certain patient populations. The first is around negative pressure dressings. These are dressings that are placed over a closed incision and seek to reduce fluid accumulation in the wound and have been shown in systematic review uh, to reduce the burden or the rate of surgical site infection. They are probably most beneficial in the reduction of superficial wound infection rather than deep and organ space uh, wound infection, but they can limit infections that start superficial, lead to wound dehiscence and could go deeper. I will say that there are specific surgeries and we reference uh, abdominal surgery and joint arthroplasty. They probably have some of the best evidence for the use of these negative pressure dressings. We also look that as you get older and as you have a higher weight, those patients tend to benefit a little bit more from these negative pressure dressings. They can at times cause some blistering and so you need to watch them closely uh, to make sure that they are not adversely impacting the integrity of the wound. The second one is around uh, the issue of antiseptic or antibiotic impregnated sutures. And what we know is that foreign bodies like sutures mean that you need a lower number of bacteria to set up an infection. And so people have been looking for years at could we add something to our sutures uh, that would help to counteract that. And we now have uh, trials on uh, wound closure with triclosan coated polygalactin-910 uh, antimicrobial sutures. They decrease the risk of SSI Probably the best evidence is in colorectal surgery. There is actually a large meta-analysis that has uh, challenged uh, how much they really do reduce surgical site infections, but it also uh, showed that there was no significant increase in wound dehiscence, which had been a concern in the past and why these were previously not in the additional recommendations. So I will say that right now for some surgical procedures, this is something to be considered. We need more evidence going forward, and we particularly probably need better evidence on their impact on resistance in the wounds because you're adding an antiseptic or an antimicrobial into a wound that was not otherwise there. Thanks. So, And I think in,
0: in addition to these essential and additional practices that we should be thinking about, I think it's also helpful that you outline several approaches that we should not be using for SSI prevention, which I think means that probably they're being done somewhere or another, and you're trying to discourage us from doing that. And Maren, I think maybe you can talk to us about some of those uh, things that we really shouldn't be doing.
3: Yes. So I think the most interesting one is routine use of vancomycin for perioperative prophylaxis. Uh, In fact, I changed my mind about this recently based on new evidence. We've known for a long time that vancomycin does not have activity against gram-negative pathogens, and it appears to have less activity against methicillin-susceptible staph aureus compared with beta-lactams. But as we've seen in many of our hospitals, there's been a trend to add vancomycin prophylaxis to standard beta-lactam prophylaxis in an effort to prevent MRSA surgical site infections. The thing that changed my mind uh, were recent cohort studies from Veterans Affairs hospitals that showed us that this might may not be a safe practice. These are studies of over 70,000 surgeries, and they found that perioperative prophylaxis with vancomycin either alone or in combination with another prophylactic antibiotic, was independently associated with an increased risk of acute kidney injury. Those studies also found that while a combination of a beta-lactam and vancomycin prevented surgical site infections among cardiac surgery, it did not reduce surgical site infection rates in other types of surgeries. Therefore, in the new compendium, we state that vancomycin perioperative prophylaxis should be reserved for special clinical circumstances such as known MRSA colonization or during a proven outbreak of MRSA surgical site infections.
0: I think a couple other things that you include in that section of things we shouldn't do are uh, routinely delay surgery to provide parenteral nutrition and to not routinely use antiseptic drapes. I think we're um, two of the other big ones on that list. But I think another thing I'd love to get your input on and, and to hear about is some of the new items that were added to the list of unresolved issues. And I think these are probably things that we should be keeping our eyes on, and maybe there'll be new or more data when this up document is next updated, but for now there just isn't enough data to say one way or the other. And it was already mentioned before that optimizing tissue oxygenation had moved from an essential practice into the unresolved category. Uh, but there are a couple of other new unresolved issues that you talk about this time, one being the use of antimicrobial powder and the other being uh, the role of surgical attire. So I'm gonna come back to you, Marin, and ask about antimicrobial powder.
3: Sure. This is something that uh, people have been very interested in, and we just still are seeing this as unresolved. There are many studies looking at vagamycin powder in surgical incisions, especially for spinal and cranial procedures in which Staph aureus is the primary pathogen. Uh, But unfortunately, some studies have found a significant increase in surgical site infections with polymicrobial infections and gram-negative pathogens. And there has been a prospective study that compared vancomycin powder in combination with IV vancomycin versus IV vancomycin alone and found no benefit for the vanco powder. And so we really think that more research needs to be done on this topic, but right now, it's not something that we can really weigh in
0: on. And Michael, how about the surgical attire issue?
2: I think this is an important conversation. You know, there are longstanding traditions. There's a lot of opinions that are out there regarding uh, surgical attire. But we actually were not able to find strong evidence for kind of many of the recommendations specific to surgical attire. What we recommended is that uh, a a healthcare facility form a multidisciplinary body, including infection control, including surgery and, and nursing. well as anesthesia and come up with a set of guidelines that all are going to adhere to. But we were not able to speak to specific surgical attire that we could directly link to reduction in surgical site infection. So
0: in addition to providing specific practice recommendations like we've been talking about, all the compendium documents also include a section on implementation strategies to assist facilities with the important job of putting the recommendations into actual practice. Uh, Are there any specific implementation strategies or approaches that your team recommends for use in achieving consistent or reliable adherence to the recommended SSI prevention practices?
1: I think, you know, implementation practices, there's a nice, as Michael sort of pointed out, really nice section on this in the current compendium it's a section six it's it's toward the end so don't miss it because i think there's a lot of great stuff with a lot of really good references that can be utilized to really put some of this into practice i'm going to focus on on a few components but first of all i think multidisciplinary approaches, much like we had for the putting these guys this uh, compendium together is really important Again, I think you want to have uh, the different stakeholders, the different participants, you know, more so than any other nosocomial infection, I think surgical site infection involves prevention, involves the most steps and different types of providers from pharmacy to anesthesia, to surgery, to nursing, to infection prevention, to antimicrobial stewardship. You know, there's a lot that goes into that whole perioperative period. And I think getting the right people at the table is really important. And also, as I pointed out, we, um, as our, you know, the types of authors and the types of reviewers that we solicited is getting frontline involvement. People who not only can quote the articles and, and, and know the data, but who actually are part of the everyday process in the OR or in the PACU or in the pre-op area. Getting these people at your site uh, who can really help contribute, and not only you know help with what in an evidence based way w- might work, but also what's practical and uh, what potential roadblocks exist? I think a reliability measures. I think there are some important a uh, process uh, reliability that can be looked at. I know I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but for example, a, a Dev and Marn both talked about antibiotic choices for preoperative prophylaxis, uh, timing is a very good one also dose particularly in obese patients uh these are things that uh, you know you can measure and not only do you measure them but you can feedback so not only the outcome results for you know how you guys are doing or how the team's doing with ssi prevention but also uh, with their pro- any sort of um, reliability measurements around process i think are important to feedback education and reinforcement Uh, Getting the stakeholders involved, not only the the frontline workers, and not only the people in infection prevention and surgery and and hospital leadership, but also patients and their families, making them part of the process, teaching them about SSI, why it's important and what they can do to help uh, prevent. Automating reminders, whether that's going to be for frequent door openings, whether that's going in the OR, whether that's going to be for timing of antibiotics or redosing of antibiotics. I think there's definitely opportunities around human factors um, engineering. And I think an important component where, you know, just to point out around human factors engineering, I mentioned OR door, room door openings. And, you know, I think it's it's hard to show an independent association with the door openings themselves and infection risk. But what I think many of us will agree with is that these OR uh, door openings, if they're frequent, and uncontrollable. I think it's very reflective the OR room uh, discipline, and you know I think there's probably a lot of other associated factors that go into a suboptimal team approach and OR environment. So I mean these are, are important components that I think can can really you know the finished product is greater than the sum of the parts, and I think issues around implementation and teamwork and um, human factors engineering are a great example of this.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to end our discussion. And we didn't have enough time to talk about everything included in the paper. So I strongly encourage everyone to read the full document for themselves. I want to point out that there is some great information on some other critical topics, such as infrastructure requirements for a robust SSI prevention program and SSI surveillance, including a discussion of the use of hospital databases and other algorithms and machine learning and other strategies to enhance our SSI surveillance. But the four of you aren't quite off the hook yet. I have one last question for all of you. At the end of each podcast, we ask each participant to give us an action item or a tip that listeners can take away from the podcast and put into practice now to begin to make care better in their facility. So with that in mind, what tip or advice would you give to someone who asks you how they can best use this new set of recommendations to improve their facility's SSI prevention program? How does one get started with this work?
2: I will start. What I would say is actually our 19th essential element in SSI uh, prevention. And this is back to what Keith was just talking about. It is really important to go out and observe what's going on in the OR, in the perioperative space, including down in central sterile reprocessing. Understand what the personnel have at hand, what may be barriers, before you begin to say, this is the change I'm going to be made. This is about co-production. We really need to do this with the teams that we are charging to make these changes in order to deliver on optimal care.
3: Yes, mine is similar to that as well. Oftentimes, hospitals will say, oh yeah, we're already doing all of that. But I think it's important to really dig in and see what is actually being implemented rather than thinking that everything that was mentioned in a meeting has actually been fully implemented. So my example of that is, if you think that you are doing preoperative nasal screening for staph aureus colonization and using mupirocin for decolonization, really look at your patients and ask them, did you use mupericin for five days before surgery? Because we've found there are many barriers to actually getting that mupericin into a patient's hands and for them to remember to use it for five days before surgery or even have it for five days before surgery in order to use it. And so I think those barriers are all things that can be overcome, but we need to be aware of them and know that we we are really implementing what we think we are implementing.
4: I think those are great points. And one I would add, I think, uh is really important is to focus on measurable interventions. Is like, give yourself the opportunity to say, yes, no, you did something. How, But then how often did it happen? And, and is that information that needs to be fed back? And I'll give you a specific one to focus on. I think that most people, when we discuss a lot of these interventions about surgical site infection prevention, when we start talking about glucose control in non-diabetic patients, they go, what? I would strongly recommend amongst those measurable outcomes that people investigate are you checking post-operative glucose on non-diabetic patients well check it on all of them but make sure you're also checking on those non-diabetic patients as a way to get the ball rolling
0: close this out Keith. Uh,
1: I have to follow these experts and you know they've already hit amazing points they've took my glucose under away but you know I'm going to go in the same vein as where Michael started this and and I'm going to go in a little different direction, but I think relationships with your surgery, We often, oh, we have to give Sir Doctor so and so his SSI rates, and he's going to argue it. You know. If you have somebody who's having issues, or their you know colo, you know their colectomies SSI rates are higher than usual. Say, hey, here are the new compendium guidelines. Did you know? I you know this is something I didn't know, but actually, antiseptic wound lavage is now. Recommended, and I'm sure this is something you've been doing. Interestingly, did you know that antibiotic irrigation really wasn't as effective? I mean, so that might be a way where you can start communicating without arguing over or providing data on your rates too high, and actually maybe get them away from using antibiotic irrigation and and start using uh, antiseptic. So I think this compendium is a great document to start conversations, maybe even some of the more difficult ones with anesthesia, with surgery, you know, and to start getting those, you know, uh, those collaborations, those um, alliances, and try to get some conversation going back and forth to try to move the needle. And as the Deb pointed out and others, you know, changing process and really, you know, improving outcomes and preventing some of these sort of devastating infections.
0: Well, thank you for those great suggestions and for joining us for this discussion today. I also want to extend my gratitude to the four of you and your colleagues for creating this fantastic resource for all of us to use in our SSI prevention work. I also want to thank Lindsay McMurray, our producer and the managing editor of ITCHY. And finally, I want to thank you, our listeners. I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the ITCHY podcast.